This morning we continue a multi-week series. We're kind of right in the middle of exploring the life of Samuel, the Old Testament prophet, judge, king maker. Samuel's a fascinating story or series of stories that we receive from the book of 1 Samuel. Today, we jump just one chapter later than we were last week. Last week, we learned about Samuel emerging as a young adult into this role that he'd been preparing for to lead the people of Israel. And just as quickly as chapter 7 turns to chapter 8, many, many years have passed. Samuel is now, in our narrative, an old man. He's getting a little too old to fulfill all of his duties, and so he's divided up some of the responsibility, giving his sons the charge to do some of the judging and justice-keeping in Israel, and it turns out they are horrible at it. They don't measure up at all to their father's standard of justice and righteousness. And so in the midst of this need for clarity in leadership for the people of Israel. Our story picks up today. We'll hear first from portions of chapter 8 and then chapter 10 of 1 Samuel. Let us listen for the word of the Lord. Then all the leaders, the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, you are old. That's not the best way to start your argument, is it? If you want it to be heard by receptive ears, I would suspect. Anyway, the elders said, You are old, and your sons do not follow in your ways. Appoint for us, then, a king to govern us like other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to govern us. Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Just as they have done to me from the day I brought them out of Egypt to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so also they are doing to you. Now then, listen to their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel reported all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. And then in the narrative, Samuel lists some of the things that the king will take from them. He says he'll take your sons to serve in his military. He'll take your daughters to work for them. He'll take your livestock, your fields, your livelihood to support this massive military system. The text continues, he will take one-tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you on that day. But the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. They said, no, but we are determined to have a king over us so that we also may be like other nations and that king may govern us and go out before us and fight our battles. The Lord said to Samuel, listen to their voice. 
and set a king over them. Then our scripture jumps to chapter 10 where we first meet the character of Saul who will be anointed as God's king. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be ruler over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen the suffering of my people, because their outcry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall rule over my people. Samuel took a phial of oil and poured it over his head and kissed him. He said, The Lord has anointed you ruler over his people Israel. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. For a long time, and for reasons I'm not entirely sure of, although I've got a guess I'll share with you in a second, Samuel has been my favorite character from the Old Testament. I'm not exactly sure why. Maybe because he's not as well known. Maybe because as we see in this text, he comes into prominence at a really important time of transition for the people of Israel. Or maybe... It's because my first dog was named Sam. And I wonder if maybe that little mutt and Samuel, who isn't exactly, he's a mix of a bunch of different things as well. He's a judge. He's a prophet. He serves as a priest at times. He anoints the kings. Samuel's a bit of a mutt of an Old Testament character as well. All these different archetypes that seem to intersect with him. Sam the dog was small with a loud bark. Kind of like Samuel, the Old Testament character. Sam the dog was fiercely loyal, although he never bit anybody. There's a loyalty in Samuel. A loyalty, a fierce loyalty that we see here in this text as well. That when the people go a different direction, turn away from looking to God as their sole leader and authority, Samuel takes it personally because he's been God's chief spokesperson up until this point. Here in this time of transition, we see in the text that the leaders of Israel come to Samuel and ask for a king. Now that might seem like an inconsequential request just given the amount of airtime that is spent on it in the text, but this is a major, major deal, a huge transition. For centuries, the people of Israel have organized themselves in a tribal system where each of the 12 tribes had their own land, their own political practices within their own tribal heads who governed over them. Only in the face of an immediate threat would they unite together. They'd spend just as much time fighting against each other. Kind of like, that reminds me of of, of teams in the SEC in football, by the way, right? They'll fight like dogs, but when you're playing someone outside the conference, oh, then then we're all united sometimes. Anyway, they had a tribal system. And here they've said, in asking for a king, 
We want to rewrite everything. We don't want to be scattered among ourselves with decentralized power. We want one person, one man who will be in charge. Give us a king. Centralize authority. We want a hierarchy. We want a clear person to fight our battles for us, to make decisions for us, to govern us. This isn't just the pomp and pageantry of a a Mardi Gras king or queen with the beautiful gowns and over-the-top crowns. This is power. This is authority. This is at the heart of how the people will organize themselves politically. And after this time of transition, they will spend centuries living under a monarchy for good some of the time and mostly for ill. This is the pivot point in their identity as a nation. It's not just a political question of government as we see Samuel says. No, this is a theological question as well. Because up until now, one of the justifications for this decentralized tribal system of government has been, we don't need a king, we have a king already. And that king is Yahweh. That king is the Lord, the one who fights our battles for us. We don't need our own human authorities because God is our authority. And so in rejecting this pattern and asking for a king, Samuel sees that they're rejecting God as well. But as you notice in the story, despite all that political power moves, what was the reason that they said, first and foremost, the reason that they wanted a king was so they could be like everybody else. All the other nations have a king to fight for them. We want one too. Everybody else has a strong military leader. Why can't we have one too? The request for a king is rooted in the desire to be like everybody else. To be like all those other people. And so they're willing to sell their birthright. To reject the very foundation of how they have been organized as a people. Since God freed them from slavery and they wandered through the wilderness, since they received the gift of the covenant given at Mount Sinai, they have understood themselves, the Hebrew people, to be different than everybody else. Their job is not to conform to the ways of the world, but to be a transformed community who lives lives and patterns its system around true justice and righteousness, around the gifts of abundance and Sabbath rest. But now they're saying, no, we want to be like everybody else. It's a struggle that anyone who has been a child with parents or a parent with children understands. We've all gone through our own version of this in growing up and developing and maturing, right? There's something Something at some point in our life that everybody else had except for us. At least that's how it felt, didn't it? And so we went to the parents and said, everybody else gets to do this. All the other kids are wearing this. 
Nobody else's curfew is as early as this. Why can't I fit in? I just want to be like everybody else, we say, right? And we know that since the days of Moses, parents have answered those requests in the same way, right? You know how it goes. If everybody else jumped off a bridge, would you? That doesn't really answer the question, does it? But it scares us into getting back in line. We want to be just like everybody else. But the Hebrew people were set apart and commissioned to be different. To live as a different pattern of life. Not wholly removed from what we just did here in the waters of baptism. As we baptized little Heidi... And as many of the rest of us remembered our own baptism identity, in these waters we're told not to conform to be like everybody else. But in the waters of baptism, instead, we are set apart, set aside, commissioned for a different task, a different identity than just fitting in with the broken patterns and the broken systems of the world around us. Not to be just like everybody else. To play that losing game of trying to catch up and to keep up. No, in these waters we proclaim a different truth and a different identity that each and every one of us belong to God. Not to the powers and principalities of this world. We belong body and soul in life and in death, not to ourselves but to God, our creator, sustainer, redeemer. In these waters, we are told, you don't listen, you don't answer to the everybody else's of the world. Because, of course, the truth is, everybody else is going to have a lot of other things they're going to tell little baby Heidi as she grows up. The world is going to tell her that because of who she is and where she lives... Because of the color of her skin or the gender that she has or because of the school that she goes to or what neighborhood she lives in or what occupation she chooses or who she marries or how she makes decisions in her life. The world's going to tell her because of all these other external factors, she either fits in or doesn't fit in for one group or another. The world's going to tell her, this is the standard. You either measure up like everybody else or you're substandard. And if she plays that losing game, as soon as she catches up, that bar keeps moving, doesn't it? To be like everybody else. But instead, we proclaim to her and we model for her as she grows up in the life of a community of faith a different narrative and a different identity that she and all of us already are included in the mystery of God's grace, in the good news of the gospel made real for us in Jesus Christ. We already belong, not because of any effort of our own to fit in, we already belong because God says so from the start. 
So back to our story. After they say they want to fit in the Hebrew people, the kingdom of Israel, we want to be like everybody else, give us a king and a later curfew. How does God respond? He responds with two responses. The first is a warning. God comes across as awfully parental in this text. A warning. God says, okay, Samuel, tell them about what it's going to be like to live under a king. And Samuel lists off this long list of the ways, the unjust ways that the king is going to operate for the kingdom. And there's one word that's repeated over and over and over in that part of the text. A a large part of that I've removed from the reading just for the sake of time. The word repeated over and over and over is take. Take. What will the king do? The king will take your sons, will take your daughters, will take your fields and your vineyards, will take your possessions, will take your livestock. The king will take all that you have. And then Samuel says, you will be his slaves. The king will take and you will be his slaves. It wasn't that long ago. Not that many generations back that the Hebrew people had been freed from slavery in Egypt, freed from Pharaoh's taskmasters, freed to live in a new way of life. And now, Samuel says, you're throwing it all away. You're re-enslaving yourselves by asking for this absolute monarch to rule over you. Israel's freedom is imploding in on itself. God warns. And then, perhaps the scariest part of this scripture, God allows it to happen. God, in the providence of God's knowledge and love and power and care, God permits the people of Israel to get what they ask for. God says to Samuel, go ahead, listen to the people, give them what they want. Natural consequences will play out for their decisions. That first king that's anointed, Saul, will end up in the end being an absolute complete disaster. We'll hear more about that in the next couple of weeks. God says... If you want to live in this way, I'm not going to intervene. I'm going to let you make this mistake, and you're going to learn from the difficulty that it will bring. God's permission is a form of God's justice here, letting the natural broken consequences play out. Now, we live in a world today where we're faced with many of our own choices, aren't we? Not just in election years where we say choice or decision in really big, bold font all over the TV. Every day we face choices. Sometimes about how we wish to and desire to be governed, but also about which voices we will let in. Which narratives we choose to believe. Which standards we seek to measure ourselves against. We've got many, many choices in life. Part of what this text invites us to see is that God is not in the business of coming in and rescuing us 
but rather letting the consequences of our decisions play out in hopes that we will learn and grow? Do we choose in our own personal lives or in the wider society that we create that God gives us permission to form? Do we choose to be about the business of taking and taking and taking or to live as a different alternative community focused on giving, living as radically generous people in response to a generous, abundant God? Do we structure our identity so that we can fit in or so that we can stand out as separate, unique, set apart? In the waters of baptism, we are claimed. We are anointed as those who belong to a king whose ways are vastly different than all the other kings who have come before or gone after. A king whose power is seen not in military might, defeat and destruction, but is seen in freely giving himself. Suffering, dying, being raised again for us. It's into that identity that we are baptized and marked from the beginning of our life of faith. And may we learn from the witness and the wisdom of Samuel as we seek to live out those baptismal promises each and every day of our lives. To God alone be all honor and glory now and forever. Amen.